Serverless is an execution model where applications are scheduled and deployed to servers that are not directly managed by the application developer. In serverless execution, an application only loads and operates when a user actually needs to get a response from that application. This saves on resources, because many applications do not need to run at all times. They only need to be available for user requests. The serverless model was popularized by Amazon Web Services Lambda. When Lambda first launched in 2015, it was an experimental product. Today, it is a widely used product, and the market has validated the desire for serverless execution. Other cloud providers have introduced different models of serverless functionality, including Google Cloud Functions, Azure Functions, and Fastly Edge Computing. Zach Bloom is Director of Product for Product Strategy at Cloudflare, and he joins the show to discuss Cloudflare's model for serverless execution. Zach also discusses Cloudflare's growing product line, including the fast, privacy-protecting DNS resolver 1.1.1.1. Zach is a rare mix of engineering, business strategy, and product vision, and that made for a great conversation. Zach's been on the show before, and we've also done episodes about the Cloudflare serverless technology and some other various episodes about Cloudflare. It's a pretty interesting company, and you can look at those episodes in the show notes or search for our back catalog. Upcoming events that Erica and I will be at for Software Engineering Daily, we're going to be at KubeCon San Diego 2019 and AWS reInvent in Las Vegas. We're planning a meetup at reInvent on Tuesday, December 3rd. That's the planned date, at least. And there is a link to the meetup in the show notes. You can sign up if you're going to be in Las Vegas. And we're all actually looking for a venue. So if you have some space in Las Vegas at the event, then that might be useful for us. Or if you want to sponsor like a big restaurant or something, that could be cool. Send us an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Thank you. Zach Bloom, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about a variety of Cloudflare things today. I want to start by talking about serverless because you wrote a post about Cloudflare isolates. It's actually something that multiple people have written in about because they're curious because we've done a bunch of different shows about serverless related things and Cloudflare has a different approach to serverless. Let's start with a brief review of the typical definition of serverless, which was pioneered by Amazon Lambda. Can you describe how the AWS Lambda execution system works? Absolutely. So AWS Lambda is what I would consider to be a pretty traditional way of running code, which is you get a process that's secured from all the other processes running on a machine that's just for you, that runs your code. Maybe it runs Node or it runs Python. What Amazon Lambda figured out, though, is you shouldn't have to administer or manage the machine that's going to run that code. So you give Amazon your code and they handle finding the machine to run it, making sure there are enough of them running in any given moment, scaling them up, scaling them down, doing all of the administration around, I need a bunch of processes running on a bunch of machines that are going to serve requests. A common problem with AWS Lambda is the cold start problem. Can you explain what the cold start problem is? Absolutely. So. In talking about what Lambda is, it's the same technology we had, which is a process running on a machine, maybe running something like Node, but with some better developer ergonomics, you know, and, and in some ways, easier ways of scaling, easier ways of paying for it, because you don't have to pay for instances anymore. You just pay for the number of, of these Lambdas that are running at any given moment. The problem is the underlying tools, things like Node, were never really designed to run in this kind of environment. Node, in the era that it was built, you might deploy your software once a week. And so if Node takes 500 milliseconds to start, or it takes three seconds to start, that's not a big deal because you're going to be doing one of these deploys maybe once a week, maybe once a day if you move pretty quickly as an engineering shop. 
Moving that into a world where you have to start one of these node instances in response to a request. So a user loads your app or loads your website, and that request flows into AWS, into an API gateway, and is now supposed to start a Lambda. All of a sudden, node has to start in five milliseconds, not 500. And it wasn't designed for that. And so it really doesn't do a great job of starting that quickly. And so it's a fundamental flaw of trying to map these process-oriented tools that were meant to deploy pretty slowly into a world where you want this massive amount of multi-tenancy. So many different copies running on a single machine, starting up almost instantly in response to a request. And that creates delays for users of several hundred milliseconds where a request will just take longer than they anticipate. And that doesn't just happen every time you deploy code. It happens every time they have to scale the number of lambdas that are running. Since only one Lambda can process a single request at a time, if you get 10 requests per second, then you're going to get 10 cold starts. And then if you get 100 requests at the same time, you're going to get another 90 in order to scale up all of the instances in response to those requests coming in. You work at Cloudflare, and Cloudflare has a fairly different model for serverless. Describe how Cloudflare thinks about the serverless paradigm. So the interesting thing is we didn't originally set out to build a serverless computing platform. The kind of origin story for me of workers, which is the thing that now very much is one, is talking to my, my very first customer call at Cloudflare three years ago was with a A-B testing company. And they said, right now we add A-B testing to websites for people and it adds a bunch of latency. It slows down these websites, and that's a big problem because A-B testing is all about optimization, and we can't slow down their website. Is there some way that we can take this giant global network that you have, which is what Cloudflare really is, we have servers, thousands and thousands of servers in 194 different places around the world, very close to basically everyone who uses the internet. And they said, can we somehow put our A-B testing code to run on your servers so we wouldn't delay these customers? And we told them no, and we told a lot of customers no in response to that question. Because when you looked at the economics, a request to Cloudflare for a given website can go to any of thousands of servers around the world. And if we were going to run the equivalent of that node Lambda on all of these servers that could receive a single customer's website, we're going to run thousands of copies of it. And an empty node Lambda consumes 35 megabytes of memory. So you're talking about something like 200 gigabytes of memory being consumed to run nothing, to run an empty example. And that's if you only have to run one copy of it on each of these machines. And then when you realize if you run a hundred processes on a machine, it works pretty well. But if you run a thousand processes on a machine and Cloudflare has 20 million customers, 20 million different websites rather that use Cloudflare. If you run a thousand processes on a machine, all of a sudden you spend a lot of time context switching from one process to another to serve requests. If you do 10,000 and one Cloudflare server can, could easily support that number of, of websites, you spend all of your time context switching, and the processor isn't actually running any customer's code. It's just switching from one bit of code to another. So you run into these really fundamental limitations. Cold starts is another one, where all of a sudden, the customer is paying you a bunch of money to make their website faster, maybe to make A-B testing work way faster. And you have to explain that some of your customers are going to get 300 millisecond delays in loading that endpoint. And so we told them no, that we couldn't do it. But eventually, what very smart people figured out, and one of them is Kenton, who, who's been on this podcast before, is there is a technology that we could adapt into our world, the technology from the web browser, the V8 JavaScript and WebAssembly engine that runs inside Google Chrome. Because the web browser is actually solving the exact same problem. It needs to run code securely in a really, really isolated sandbox. So PayPal.com can't steal from Google.com. It needs to start code incredibly quickly because when you open a tab, you really care that it loads fast. And it needs to use a super minimal amount of memory because you get very angry when your web browser uses up too much memory. One of the biggest complaints about web browsers is as you have more and more tabs open, they get slower. And the way they solved this problem is with a concept called isolates, where instead of having a different process for each bit of code you want to run and relying on the operating system to use the same mechanisms it's had for the last 40 years to manage who gets to run when, what if we put it all in one process, we have one virtual machine, and everyone just gets a little tiny thing called an isolate, which just represents their code and essentially their, and their variables. And that single virtual machine can do a really smart job of balancing who gets to execute, which isolate is executing when, 
all in a single process. So the operating system never context switches, it keeps a single process running the whole time, and it can spin up a new one of these little isolates because it doesn't have to start a new node process, a new virtual machine, anything like that, in like 4.4 milliseconds, I think is the average, something like that. So that's 100 times faster, 50 to 100 times faster than Node, than Lambda, any of these existing things that, that, that a lot of people use. And it uses about a tenth as much memory, about three megabytes instead of 35. So it ended up fixing a lot of these really fundamental problems. And we used it to let people configure Cloudflare and to let people start to build applications. But it wasn't until we started benchmarking it that we realized that there was something here that kind of transcended what we thought we were doing. Because we set up these first benchmarks and we saw, yeah, you know, we're a lot faster than Lambda. You know, we're faster than Lambda at Edge. That's great. You know, we have a denser network. We're closer to the testing location. So that makes sense. But then you look at the testing data from close to where the Lambda is running. So you deploy a Lambda to US East 1, and then you run a Cloudflare worker there, and you run a Lambda at Edge there, and you test it from really close to there. So network latency has nothing to do with it. Everything is close. And you realize the worker's also way faster. And that was shocking. And we suddenly realized that there might be something to this idea of isolates that transcends our particular needs to run it around the world. And it might actually be a really good way to do serverless in general, because it fixes a lot of these fundamental problems like cold starts and makes it really possible for someone to just write code and deploy it and not have to think about how to get it running or running all around the world. That maybe it was time for a new type of a multi-tenancy based architecture that doesn't rely on the operating system that was stuff that was figured out 40 years ago, but is actually based on something more, more modern. So the contrast between the two models, between the AWS Lambda model and the Cloudflare worker, Cloudflare isolates model is in the Lambda world, the host spins up probably a VM and then a container within a VM or maybe just a container. It's just a container. Just a container on bare metal. Okay. And then has to execute the code and has a whole a whole stack devoted to managing that container. Whereas in the isolates model, there's just a context and there's a single, perhaps a single process managing all those different contexts on a V8 instance, on a Cloudflare box and in the, in the worker, the isolate model. What kinds of workloads can the worker model, the, you're the Cloudflare worker model, what kinds of workloads is that well-suited to and what kinds of workloads is it not well-suited to? That's a really good question because both of those sides have, have answers. One of the interesting things is our world is not built around how processes work. So we don't let you do system calls. You know, We don't try to pretend to be giving you a process uh, in the way that a VM does. We actually do everything with the web platform. So if you want to fetch something over the internet, you use the fetch API, the same thing you use in a browser. If you want to compute an HMAC, you use the web crypto API. So that means that our world is much more similar to writing code in a web browser, and that's the type of code that we expect, than how you would write code to run on a traditional system with system calls and opening files and things like that. So already we're kind of thinking about a different world of code. And it requires a little bit of adaptation to take a piece of code that was originally meant to run on a server somewhere and suddenly run it inside a worker. The other big world is how much access to storage you have. Because we are building out our capability to let you store data around the world and have databases, have things like that. So you can truly build an application that's you know, deployed basically how the internet is deployed, where it just kind of runs everywhere and you have no idea, you know, you don't need to worry about where your data is stored and where your code is running. But right now we kind of have the code running part figured out and the data storage part we're just inching our way closer to. So if you have an application right now that needs a ton of data storage, uh, you have to use an external system like Firebase. A lot of the time we have a key value store, but it's not necessarily what you're going to use for the primary data store of your application. So that's one answer. If you're, if you're doing a ton of CRUD type operations, you need a traditional database, you need transactions, you need those types of things, you at least have to store your data externally and then process it and interact with your users inside the worker. Conversely, something that is somewhat stateless works amazing in a worker right now. If you want to compute, you know, do, do session authentication with an HMAC, which is one thing that I mentioned. So a user comes in and they give you a token and you decide if that token is valid and whether you should forward that request along to your API. That's a beautiful thing to do in a worker. 
if you need to serve content to people and you want your your site to be really really fast or you want to deploy your your a static website that's a beautiful thing to do in a worker and it's really great because you have a much nicer like growing path with a worker than you do with a traditional like i'm going to deploy a static website if you decide you want to run some code and you want things to work a little bit differently, you can just write that code and run it and your worker will execute it all around the world. Whereas with a traditional static website, it just kind of works the way it works and you can't really grow. So things that are at least somewhat stateless or where you can really encode the data into a key value type model and where you care about the performance are really the best places to use a worker right now. But ask me again in a year and it will, it will have grown a lot. Mm. I think the other interesting aspect about it is there's constraints around the languages you can use, right? Because it, if it's executing in V8, mm-hmm. then the only things that can execute in V8 are JavaScript or WebAssembly, you know, situations where you have where WebAssembly actually works. So it's like Rust and what else is in So it's C, C++, like traditional yeah. compiled languages. This is one of these things that we were just incredibly lucky with because at the time that we started doing this, totally coincidentally, the WebAssembly craze had started and all these languages were doing a bunch of work to port themselves to WebAssembly. Obviously, that's nothing we did, but it was very, very lucky for us because this V8 engine all of a sudden can't just run JavaScript and languages that compile to JavaScript like TypeScript, which we use a lot. We could use Rust and C and C++ and now increasingly Go. Support for Go has gotten significantly better. And basically any language you can name is currently at some point in the process of being ported to WebAssembly. I know there's a COBOL port, there's Elgol, I'm sure there's Fortran somewhere, but obviously also uh, C-sharp, PHP languages that, that more people care about. So that was, again, just total dumb luck. But it means that this platform isn't just relevant for people writing JavaScript. It's relevant for almost any language as long as you can compile. You have the source code and you're capable of compiling it into this new WebAssembly thing. It's not just a compiled binary that you have somewhere. I keep seeing anecdotal evidence that this future of more and more stuff moving to the edge is coming to fruition. And it will be interesting to see what the convergence is or what the you know like if you can run anything essentially at the cdn layer or at the back-end server layer it will be very interesting to see what the division of labor between those two areas is do you have any ideas or predictions so traditionally and i I agree with you that i think this is a really interesting thing traditionally people thought of edge computing as a really esoteric thing if you you know read some early reports on edge computing it was all about it's going to be autonomous vehicles augmented reality like these these future things flying cars basically is going to be what you use edge computing for and obviously everyone's going to keep doing the things we already do in the in the core but with the stuff we're looking at with isolates, all of a sudden, it kind of gets cheaper to do edge computing. It's not really expensive anymore in the way that it would be if you're trying to do you know, Kubernetes at the edge. But it's way cheaper because if a request comes in in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, it's actually cheaper for us to spin up an isolate in a few milliseconds of, of CPU, respond to the request, and be done than it is to transport, the, pay for the bandwidth to get the request all the way to US East 1 and then respond. So all of a sudden, this edge computing thing isn't really, really expensive. It's actually often significantly less expensive, for us at least, than processing all the requests in one location. And so if it's faster for users, and it's less expensive, and it's so much more resilient and failure tolerant, because it's almost impossible to have 194 data centers, or maybe literally impossible, go down, you know, in the way that you could with a single availability zone or region, you know, any network partition or anything like that can block users from being able to access a traditional data center. But it's totally impossible that it, that it could happen all around the world. Why would you put something centrally? What would be the advantage of doing that centralized compute? You know, maybe if you needed to do some sort of really specific data processing where you needed a huge amount of data all in one place that could interact with each other. But in our experience, what we're looking at is that a lot of applications really only need to access a subset of data. You know, when you and I edit a Google Doc, we don't need every single Google Doc on Earth to be in the single server somewhere. We just need the one we're editing to be in a location close to us. So we believe that there are a lot more opportunities to divide data up into different regions where it's necessary or valuable or you want to store it for legal reasons and not need to try to have a single view of truth in a single location where all of your processing is going to happen. 
and that it's better for users and faster and more resilient. I think most things are going to happen in what, what we now call the edge. But I think in the future, we'll just call like the internet. So maybe you keep your entire Cassandra or MySQL database in a backend place. Maybe you keep it close to the TPUs and the GPUs that are all on some you know cloud provider that has all that horsepower and you want the data close to all the horsepower. But for most workloads, the edge will do just fine. And it'll be faster for users and easier for people to deploy. And yeah, it'll just, it, it will be the final evolution of moving from a model of mainframes lo- located in the basement of an office building to the internet, to something that, was, that works the way the internet works. You know, your, your compute and your storage should be as geographically diverse as your users. Do you think we'll ever see a time where backends will get compiled or bundled and actually deployed to user applications. So imagine like I have my smartphone right now. If we can deploy subsets of backend logic to the edge and more and more of those subsets are going to get pushed to the edge, why not push it even further? Why not get a WebAssembly bundle on my phone so that maybe, you know, I'm just hitting my client device for a lot of the backend logic. Is that realistic? I think it's realistic. You have to figure out why you're doing it. One advantage would be it's easier for developers. You know, I remember when Node was coming out and people were really excited about the idea of isomorphic development, that you could write a line of code and it could run in Node or in the browser. And that didn't really work out because it turns out Node is a very different environment than the browser and it has all of its own APIs. It could work in something like isolates because it is, but they're both literally the web platform, so they support the same APIs, which is which is closer. But you have to be sure you know what the purpose of doing that for is. Is it efficiency, or is it to have a single development environment that you get to deploy code everywhere with? Is it performance? I think it's totally something that you could do, and I do know people who are compiling WebAssembly into the browser in order to augment it and add capabilities. Yeah. Did you have to do anything to modify V8 or to get V8 to do what you wanted it to do as this multi-tenant backend as a service edge computing platform? So there are a lot of pieces that Cloudflare built. So you have V8, the core, which you can give pieces of code and it can run them in an isolated and, and somewhat cooperative way. But then you have to decide what you're going to run when. So you need a whole process runner that's going to manage these V8 isolates and spin them up and spin them down and respond to requests. You need all of the APIs. So when you make a request with the fetch API, it's our C++ code that's actually executing. You know, the, we have a access to the cache API that lets you store things in the Cloudflare cache around the world. That's all C++ code that we had to write. Web crypto is all bindings on top of crypto libraries that we had to write. So it, it literally can just run code. It can't do anything interesting without a layer on top of it that, that we had to write. There's also tons of security stuff that I, you know, am, am not the best person to talk about, but I know was, was, was done in order to, to make it a secure platform as well. So... The workers and the isolates, this is not the only thing you work on. Your your title is now VP of product? Director of product. Director so, of product. Yeah. So one of the directors of product at Cloudflare, and I focus on product strategy. So that's new stuff that we build, particularly new stuff that appeals to totally new markets, totally new areas, customers who maybe wouldn't have been customers of Cloudflare before and can be now. And we get to do that because we have this really big global network with all these servers running in all these places around the world. And so every day we kind of show up to work and say, given that you have that, what is it that you're suddenly able to build? It's so funny seeing people take the perspective that the cloud game is over, AWS is won. It's so so deeply incorrect. Like there's so much white space remaining to explore particularly for companies that don't have a gigantic catalog of products that they need to maintain already. Cloudflare has 
a smaller set of things that it has focused on and done extremely well and built core competencies in. What are those core competencies of Cloudflare that you see as the backbone of opportunities to explore? That's a great question. And one fundamental one is just we don't have the legacy that AWS has, right? There is an innovator's dilemma and there is this idea that every customer you get who's super happy with the things that you build subtly restricts your ability to build something that would be at odds with what they expect. So for example, everything that Amazon has is kind of built around this process model where you can lift and shift an existing piece of code and actually run it in whatever environment they provide. When we built Workers, we said, we're not going to support that, that we support the web platform. And we think everyone should just build everything on the web platform. And Amazon cannot necessarily do that quite as readily because they do have so many people who rely on the things that they already built. And that's just a, the nature of, of disruption. We also have 20 million websites that use Cloudflare who really love Cloudflare. You know, one of the things that I love so much about having this job, because before Cloudflare, I had a startup and at the startup, you build something and then you spend maybe six months working on it or a year working on it. And then you spend the next four years trying to get anyone to care. That was the first show we did, by the way. Yeah. Great show, because I think for the exact reason that you just defined, you you kind of, I mean, that was a tough startup to build, tough startup to work on. And, you know, I think is a great, a great outcome, you know, acquired by a company and then a company that kind of had a shared vision and you, you got to meld with that vision. It was shocking. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anyone's like my company got acquired story that worked out as well as this one did, because it is so amazing getting to work on even more stuff, even more quickly and have all these people who really care about the things that we build because we have all these really great users. And that is a big advantage of Cloudflare. We also have this super dense network, 194 places around the world and not just places in internet exchanges where you can give them some money and they'll put your servers there, but inside ISPs all around the world. These places that are very difficult to get servers to and very difficult to clear customs in and very difficult to negotiate with and very difficult to place. Those are huge advantages because when an engineer walks into Cloudflare and they write a line of code, like 1.1.1.1 is a great example, which is our DNS resolver. It was built by three people in a few weeks, basically. And it's the fastest DNS resolver on earth. And obviously since then, they've put a lot more time into it, but it would take you and I, who knows how long to build the fastest DNS resolver on earth. We'd, have, we'd spend the next 10 years trying to put more servers in more places. And they were able to do it in a few weeks. And that's an amazing advantage for everything that we build. And there also seems to be a willful perspective that Cloudflare has on what it wants out of technology, an ethos. How does the ethos of Cloudflare set the product direction? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I've never worked anywhere that had as fundamental of a ethical, philosophical core as Cloudflare. You know, I've worked at interesting places that were building interesting technology that I think made good decisions. But to really genuinely want the internet to be better and make decisions on that basis when people are looking or not looking is a totally new thing for me. And I do believe that it's a huge advantage. You know, in the short term, I think making decisions that are easy can grow a company. But I, one of the things that I've really realized is a lot of the people who work around me at Cloudflare really work there because they believe in what the company is doing. And if the company hadn't made those tough decisions when it, when it did and when it does, they just wouldn't be there anymore. Like it is a core part of the culture that changes everything in a company. So the other products that you work on aside from the workers platform. So one is access, which is zero trust networking. Essentially we've, we've done some zero, some shows on zero trust networking so people can listen back to that. But Tell me about, I mean, I understand what zero trust networking is as philosophy for how a company should manage its access to resources. How is it a product? Like, what is the, what is the product that you're building around zero trust networking? That's a good question. So if you are a traditional company right now, you have a network that has all of your secret internal stuff on it. You know, all the internal applications that someone built that allows you to manage your orders or manage your systems and you go to some IP address and it loads and it's all on, inside your internal network. And the way that you protect it is by 
not letting people open up a laptop and connect to your internal network. And if people want to travel or leave the office or maybe you have remote offices, you have a VPN where it extends that internal network to reach all the way around the world to wherever their computer happens to be. There are big fundamental problems with that, as you know. One is just any device inside the network suddenly can access everything. And it's so easy to get a single bit of malware inside an office building. You know, one exploited laptop or phone is a, is a pretty trivial thing to do. So the question for your organization is, how do we move to a model where I'm making a decision on a per request basis, whether this person should be able to access this thing? And the answer is a product that we call Cloudflare Access, where you take the Cloudflare Edge that's around the world and you put it in front of all of your services and no one can talk to them directly anymore. They have to talk to this Cloudflare Edge. And the Cloudflare Edge gets to make access control decisions around should this person on this device at this moment with the credentials that they had, which usually looks like, you know, logging into Okta or Google Apps for business, you know, a traditional login, just like they would for their email. Should they be able to access this thing right now? And if the answer is yes, then the Cloudflare Edge allows it to go over a secure tunnel to the actual origin inside your system where, where the code is. So no one is on your internal network. And that's where that word zero trust comes from. You don't trust anyone. You pretend that everyone is the public internet and everyone has to go through this Cloudflare Edge in order to access your system. What are the competing product, you don't have to name specific products, but what are the other, the other ways of facilitating zero trust networking? Well, that's a great question because there aren't a ton. It was invented by Google right. as a part of their Beyond Corp initiative, yes. where they got hacked pretty aggressively and they had to figure out a way to solve this very existential networking problem. And they have made a, something of a business out of it as a part of Google Cloud. If you use right. Google Cloud, you can use a lot of their Beyond Corp. And there are companies that provide a similar service. The big advantage that Cloudflare had coming into this is, again, that edge network. Because when you add Cloudflare in front of your services, we generally aren't going to slow anything down because your users are already so close to one of Cloudflare's pops. So that's one big advantage. You have this network density. That means you go from a model where all of your traffic is getting VPN to a central location that might be thousands of miles away from where the user is to one where they're connecting to a Cloudflare pop that's within a few milliseconds of them in most places and then immediately able to go to the service that they actually want to connect to. So it dramatically improves the performance, again, because we're able to take advantage of that giant network that so few people have unless they, unless they use workers. The other big advantage we had is a bunch of technology that we'd already built. So we have this Argo Tunnel product, which lets us securely make a tunnel from wherever your servers are running your code on Earth to Cloudflare so that all that traffic can flow back to your origin securely. We already had that product and it already worked. And that made it much, much, much easier for us to make this access thing make sense. We also have Argo, which is our way of routing traffic over the Internet more quickly by making better decisions, kind of like, you know, like Google Maps traffic for packets over the internet. And we're able to turn that on for this as well. And suddenly everyone's ability to you know, clone an internal Git repo gets much faster. And so we're able to take advantage of all these other pieces and parts that Cloudflare has built and make a really powerful system. When you decide to build a new product within a company like Cloudflare, we already have established products. How do you go about spinning up a new team? Do you deprive other teams of resources? Do you put out a job request? And then you have to divide your time among your pre-existing obligations. Tell me about how you spin up a new team. So that is the fundamental problem of having a resource-constrained organization, but you want a resource-constrained organization because you want to be focused and you want to have to make choices. And having an infinite supply of people to work on things slows you down ultimately you know the whole amazon two pizza teams idea so you have to make choices so occasionally there's a product that gets spun down or pivoted or moved in a different direction and a lot of the time people help from other parts of the organization so for example we recently launched a workers html parser and that html parser wasn't actually primarily built by the workers team it was built by the speed team who were building a whole bunch of things to make websites faster. And they needed a new HTML parser, and they wanted to be able to use it in workers because it's so much easier to deploy code with workers than the way that we've done it in the past. And so they sat down and built this new parser in Rust and were integrated it into workers. 
And that required a little bit of support on the workers team, but it was primarily made possible by the fact that people actually wanted to use this thing. So it's similar to how an open source project works, where you have people who want to contribute because they want this thing to be better because it makes their lives easier. And we're able to kind of pull, you know, pull water out of a stone or something like that and get things done that we wouldn't normally have have the people or time to do. The other big thing is only doing stuff that we are uniquely able to do because we have the network and the customers that we have. And because we have workers. Like Access, for example, is totally built on workers. Mm. And that means that that team can be a handful of people and write code and it's just gonna run in 194 places. And it makes their lives so much easier. And they're able to use Argo Tunnel and they're able to use all these other technologies. If they had to build something totally from scratch that didn't take advantage of any of the things that Cloudflare had, yeah, they would need a much, much larger team. So we try not to spend our time on those things. So similarly to what AWS always talks about, they're always building using their previous APIs. They're always building on S3 and EC2 and so on. And you have the ability to do the exact same thing, the same compute abstractions that you give to users. You you build into uh, higher level abstractions. Another product you work on is Warp. I remember the day that this launched, it was like sitting at the top of Hacker News for the entire day. It was awesome. It was a really good launch page because I've used VPNs, like mobile VPNs before. Not a great experience. Explain what Warp is. So VPN is a useful way to explain it, but I usually say if you know what a VPN is, you shouldn't be using Warp because most of the people who use a VPN right now are super security conscious or they're super privacy conscious. They are very technological already. They know how to install a mobile VPN, which is pretty difficult for most of these. And they're either trying to you know, access Netflix in a different country than the one they're currently in, or they would just want more privacy on the internet. And if you are able to do that, that is awesome. You are wonderful. You are among the 0.01% of most technologically adept and privacy conscious people on the internet. Warp is really for the 99.9%. It's for people who have never heard of a VPN before. They're not looking for anonymity. Like they're not trying to do things that are hidden from the site that they're visiting. They're just trying to not be spied on in a coffee shop or to not have their internet service provider sell their internet browsing data. And so they need a way to securely encrypt their connection from their phone, which only supports phones for now, but that'll grow over time, to the actual website that they intend on visiting. And we're trying to give them that. And in the process, we're trying to make their internet better instead of making it worse. Because I would I would venture that most VPNs make your internet somewhat worse. That's kind of an established idea that you're, instead of going directly to the place that you're trying to visit, you now have to go to some third party server somewhere. And that extra hop is gonna slow down your internet by some amount. And we're saying, if we upgrade the protocol between your phone and, and the the edge between your phone and, and the, the internet, basically, and we use a more modern protocol than, than what has been used for the last 40 years, and we use our Argo smart routing technology that we talked about earlier, where we know which transit providers and which paths through the internet are least congested in any given moment and route you that way, it should be possible for us to make your internet better while we also make it more secure and more private. And we really believe that that's the only way that we're going to actually change the internet, that we're really going to make it a private, secure place where no one can spy on anyone and where it's possible to innovate and move really quickly and make it better. So this is a consumer product. It is the first Cloudflare consumer product. Yes. So it is meant for your parents and your friends, people who use the internet, but they're not super technical. They certainly don't have a website. And you install an app onto your phone. It's called 1.1.1.1. And we send all of your internet traffic over WireGuard, which is a super modern, very secure, basically VPN protocol, to Cloudflare's Edge before it goes out onto the internet. So you have this secure, fast, optimized, more modern protocol tunnel between your phone and the world. Why does that differ from the naive way of sending internet traffic? That's a great question. So there are two protocols that are really commonly used to send data over the internet. One is called TCP and one is called UDP. And TCP is a really robust, very complex protocol that guarantees it will send the thing that you intend on it sending in the correct order with the correct content to your destination. The problem with TCP 
is it has a lot of overhead and it doesn't handle the things that commonly happen on the mobile internet very well. When packets get dropped, it forces everything to basically grind to a halt, retrieves those packets, gets them back in order, and ensures that you have this really, really reliable connection between two points. Turns out though, in the last 40 years, we figured out a lot of things that allow us to do this in a more robust way, more efficient way. So instead of needing to grind everything to a halt and reconstruct packets and sort out the order, we can send things much more quickly and figure out the things that we missed later on and reconstruct them and use more modern protocols in order to make this happen. And a lot of this concept is very similar to what's being done with HTTP3 right now, where the world is deciding we don't want TCP to manage the reliability of our connections. Just give us UDP, which is much less reliable, doesn't provide any of those guarantees protocol, and we'll do all of that other stuff on top of it. That's a part of what powers warp. Any benchmarks on how much faster HTTP3 is than HTTP2? There are. I don't have them. You can actually try it yourself because Cloudflare shipped HTTP3 recently. So you can turn it on for your website. And with Chrome Nightly, I guess, or a very modern version of Chrome, you're actually able to browse the internet with HTTP3 now. Hmm. So the the security is is improved because... I guess I'm not, I'm not quite getting the security component. So why is the security improved? So you are, your data is now public key encrypted from your phone through your local cell tower or Wi-Fi network or wherever you are, all the way through your internet service provider so they can't see anything that you're doing, all the way to Cloudflare's Edge. And that's very important for two reasons. One is if you visit a non-HTTPS website, so a non-secured website, everything you're doing is in the plain text. So they're able to get the content of the site, anything you, you submit to the site, very, very insecure, very bad. But even if you are visiting an HTTPS website, because of something called SNI, it's actually possible to see all of the websites that you visit. Mm. Because you have to tell the server what website you intend on visiting before it can negotiate the TLS secure connection. So your ISP right now, or anyone snooping on you in a coffee shop Wi-Fi, knows every single website that you go to. And maybe that's a big deal to you, maybe it's not, but it certainly is a limitation on the privacy guarantees of the internet. And no one that I know feels super confident in the fact that their ISP is not selling all of that data. I would say if, if there's money to be made in it, I, I would. they probably are. <laughs> So this idea that we can encrypt this big chunk of, of the transmission, the least secure chunk of the internet transmission, greatly improves the privacy and the security of people using the internet. And it doesn't cause any kind of problems with the endpoint I'm trying to hit, right? Like if I am authenticated with Google and I'm trying to access my Gmail, it's not going to cause any kind of issue. Right. It's going to go through Cloudflare's Edge, but it's still going to go to Gmail, and we're going to do our best to inform Gmail of who you are. Again, we're not trying to provide anonymity for anyone, but it will go over that encrypted tunnel. And what have you learned building a consumer product? That is a great question. It is so different. One thing is just the volume of support requests. I mean, we in the app, we have a button you can push to send us a, a ticket, right? To send us, you know, feedback about the app or something like that. And when you're deploying something that runs all around the world and is victim to all of the different internet connections and all of the ISPs everywhere, there are all sorts of issues for us to work work out. And and we like that. That's one of the reasons we launched Warp Consumer Product because we want to work out every issue and become really really good at securely, you know, tunneling internet traffic. But there are a lot of support requests. And there are a lot of people who have questions or concerns or want to talk to us or want to tell us that it didn't work in a certain situation in a certain moment. And the volume of that is definitely a new thing for me to experience. Another is how happy and nice people are, right? Like when you're offering someone an app that's mostly for free, you can pay us a little bit of money and we'll, we'll use that Argo routing technology to, to, to make your internet work a little bit better. But in general, it's free. People are really forgiving and they're really kind and they're really nice. And it's amazing how many people you can run into that really believe in the mission of 1.1.1.1 and Warp in a way which I, which I totally didn't anticipate. As we near the end, I want to revisit serverless a little bit. I don't know how much you've looked into the other models of serverless. Like, have you looked much at 
Fargate or Knative or Firecracker? Do you have any perspective on these different technologies? So I can speak generally. A, a lot of that is about saying, we have a VM or we have a container and we want to make it incrementally faster. Yes. And that's a super valuable business to be in because if you can be 100 milliseconds faster than someone else, then customers will choose to use you. And this, since this is already an established market, a lot of people buy VMs every day, there's a ton of uh, money that you can make really quickly just by being the slightly faster version of the thing that someone's already looking for. That is very different than what Cloudflare is doing. Right. Cloudflare is in a, in a more disruptive place where it's saying, we're going to build something that is doesn't work the same way as the things you already use, that you're going to have to architect your applications around a little bit. And in return, you might get something that's 100 times faster than what you were doing before instead of two times faster. So I see them as very different, totally different world, appealing to totally different customers, totally different maturity level of the market. Awesome products, awesome technology, very, very impressive engineering. Has Cloudflare gotten into open sourcing much of its technology, or does that just not make sense because you are in a pretty distinct position? So Cloudflare does open source a lot of stuff. So for example, we were talking about Warp, and our Rust WireGuard implementation is totally open sourced. And we would love for people to use it and think everyone should use it. So we try to open source as much as we can. Obviously, it is a process and it takes a lot of work and there's a lot of overhead to managing and maintaining an open source project. So we're pretty confident doing it around libraries and things that are low level that only a limited number of people can use. But doing it for like complete product level things is a little bit more challenging from a resource constraint problem space. But we like open sourcing things. It's fun. And we use a lot of open source things. Given how much you think about product strategy, I think you have a pretty good perspective on how to think about competition. I've had a lot of conversations recently with companies that are competing with cloud providers from a different angle than you. You're competing with cloud providers directly. I mean, you know, you're you're a CDN. Most of the cloud providers offer their own kind of CDN. I don't know, maybe you wouldn't use the term CDN, edge computing. But Cloudflare has managed to differentiate and build a gigantic business. There are these other companies that have kind of a co-opetition with AWS where, you know, they have Elasticsearch or a database product and they feel like there is an uncomfortable adversarial relationship. Do you have any reflections on how to think about competition in the modern era of software infrastructure? Well, I think I would be very afraid of those types of relationships with Amazon as well, because you look at like Toys R Us, where they outsourced their fulfillment to Amazon and then basically went out of business. Like it is certainly a dangerous thing to get into a close business relationship with the enemy in that way, if that's how you relate to them. I think for us, there are just so many more people on this earth who have never heard of serverless than who have heard of serverless and are using a competitor. You know, like the mission for all of us really is expanding the market greatly to usher in a new era of how you build software. And we're so far away from completely succeeding with that. We're really only reaching the earliest of the earliest adopters right now. And we're giving them kind of a halfway tolerable experience, but certainly not the level of the experience that should be possible with the technology itself that will be possible over time. So, so much of this mission is really about making developers happier, making them have a better experience using serverless, make more people know what serverless is and want to use it and want to answer questions like which provider they should use. And that represents, I think, 99.9% .9 of the growth available in this world. And competition between vendors right now is 0.1% right. of the available money. Last question. How will cloud providers look in a decade? That's a great question. I hope that the answer is not one. You know, I hope the answer is not there's one giant successful cloud provider that through network effects has been able to capture the entire world. I think the world is more fun with disruption and with companies succeeding and then failing and ebbing and flowing. And it seems like innovation happens faster and things get better for developers more quickly, which is really what I care about when there's a lot of competition and a lot of things are churning. And I know that gets on people's nerves, particularly in like the front end ecosystem where they feel like every year they have to learn a totally new stack. 
But I look at how much better it is to develop code on the front end now than it was 10 years ago. And I'm like, thank God. Like, even if you just stopped now, your life is so much better than it was. And I hope that continues to happen. I hope I look back in 10 years and, you know, the way that you build a website is you go like, I want Facebook, but for cats and you hit enter. And like nice. that is, and developers get to think about entirely new classes of high level problems than they can, than they can worry about today. Actually, I lied. One more question. When you were working on your company, I think it was 2014 through 2016, right? It was, what was the name of the company? Again? It was called Eager. Eager. How has the world diverged from where you thought it was going to go in that time? Because in, in Eager, you were making a specific bet mm-hmm. on a view of the future. How has that view of the future been diverged? What has come out differently than you anticipated? I would say that everything happens somewhat disappointingly slowly. So, you know, you really hope that it, sitting in 2014, the world of being a developer or the world of having a website would be dramatically different in 2019. <laughs> and it isn't. It's, that's true. It really isn't. You know, plugin ecosystem is pretty much the same. Right. Maybe you use React instead of using Angular. But the experience of writing code and how you get the code that you use and how someone installs some code and how they a- add things to a website or make them better, all of these pieces really work exactly the same. And so the answer that I would give is like, I'm surprised at how long it actually takes for things to really change. And, you know, I see a lot of the, what we're trying to do at Cloudflare to be making it such that everyone can really use the internet. Everyone can build things on the internet, not just a tiny set of super technical people. And the internet started, you know, just being used by a handful of researchers And it has gradually expanded to the point where, you know, if you have a coffee shop, there's a way that you can make a website with limitations. And I really see this journey as ending when every single person can use the internet comfortably to build things and create things and interact with things and not get hacked and not be in danger whenever they want on any device. And I think we're still pretty early. I think the tools still require you to have like years and years of experience before you can really safely build things on the internet. And there are so many ways to shoot yourself in the foot that like you have to be very, very skilled and experienced to not like introduce security vulnerabilities, for example. So I just see it all as happening much slower than I expected. Zach, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. This was really great.